Welcome, everybody. It's really nice to be here. My name's Charles Hudson. I'm the founding partner of a new brand new venture capital firm called Precursor Ventures. And I'm here today to talk about ways to think about sourcing capital for your business. I've spent most of my career actually in venture capital, but I wanted to try to provide some thoughts that would work even if you're not focused exclusively on raising money from VCs. So just quickly about me, I've been a venture capitalist across three different firms. Uh, I worked for a firm called Incutel, which did strategic venture capital for the CIA. I worked at an early stage venture firm right around the corner from here called SoftTech VC for five years as a partner, made about 20 investments with my colleagues in companies like Postmates, Fitbit, Eventbrite, Poshmark, a number of really interesting ones. And then a year and, ago, a year and a half ago, decided to set out on my own and start my own firm. And I get asked by entrepreneurs a lot to talk about raising money, so I thought I would share some of my consolidated thoughts. Who, who here in the room, just so I have a sense, has a business and is raising money for it, whether it's from banks, venture capitalists, friends and family? Oh, cool. Well, I, I hope, some of this, hope some of these comments are helpful and resonate with you. For most of my life, I've been a VC, and my parents have never understood what I did for a living until this TV show called Shark Tank came out. And I finally could explain to my parents in pretty simple terms what I do. Uh, a lot of times, if you're new to raising capital, one of the challenges is shows like this make it seem really glamorous, you know, bright lights, famous people. Uh, a lot of venture fundraising and capital fundraising, it might look like this on TV, but for anyone who's ever raised money, a lot of times it feels a lot more like this. You're out there trying to struggle and hustle and get people to give you money by hook or by crook. I've spent the last year and a half raising money for my venture capital fund, so I can tell you that whether you're on the VC side or entrepreneur side, it often feels like this. And I thought I would just talk about some of the things that I've learned that can help people get through this whole process of raising capital. And I think one of the biggest questions, I meet probably a 1,000 entrepreneurs a year that are looking for VC funding. You'd be surprised by the number of people who I think have not really thought through why they're raising capital and the kind of business that they want to build. Because depending on the kind of business you want to build, there are different capital sources that make sense for you. I think there's kind of three broad classes of businesses. There's what I call the rocket ship, which is a business that has a really big idea, a big vision, but without fuel and thrust, it'll never get off the launch pad. These are the kind of businesses that are really hard to start if you don't have access to capital right away. But if you get everything right, they can really take off. I put things like an Uber or an Airbnb or any of your big internet companies kind of in this category. And I'd say at the other polar end of the extreme is kind of a tortoise business, which is a business you can really start with your own money. I think sometimes people derisively call those lifestyle businesses. I think that's kind of a misnomer. There's some businesses where you can start small, you can start slow, and little by little, month over month, you can grow, and you can build those into a big business as well. I think, unfortunately, most businesses are more like this. They're kind of in between. They're not an obvious rocket ship. It's not a business that needs $20 million to get off the ground. And it's also not a business you would start nights and weekends and think that week over week you would grow it and turn it into something really massive. You're kind of in between. You need some capital to get started, but you don't need tons and tons. And so for a lot of entrepreneurs, they find themselves at this sort of fork in the road. You know, what do I do? Do I try to go the tortoise route and grind it out? Do I try to go get access to capital so I can get off the launch pad? You know, what do I do? 
And so whenever I try to coach people through this process, I think once you've decided that, hey, I have a business where I want to go out and talk to other people about raising capital, then the question is, how much capital do you really need? Do you have the kind of business that needs tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to get off the ground? In my new fund precursor, I focus on really early stage teams. The typical team I back is two founders and an idea, and most of those folks are looking for 500,000 to a million dollars to take whatever is a rough prototype and turn that into a launched product. <clears throat> I'd say that's pretty common. In other cases, I have companies in my portfolio that are looking to go from purely North America, United States based to companies that have a global footprint. And those companies in some cases are raising $150 million. And the reason I think it matters to know whether you need you know, huge stacks of money or coins because there are different types of investors that have different preferences. I like to write really small checks because I have a small fund. My old partner likes to write larger checks because he has a bigger fund. <coughs> there are some people whose minimum check is $50 million. So as an entrepreneur, you have to understand before you go in and pitch someone and look to raise money, you really need to understand where that person's coming from, the kind of check that they like to write, and what your business needs actually are for the stage where you are. And kind of the rule of thumb I tell people is, you know, that first $500,000 that you look to raise, you're probably going to get that from people who know you really, really well. Typically speaking, that can be anyone from family, friends, old bosses, business angels, folks who are probably going to bet on your company more because they've had a positive working relationship with you than you've, you've solved all the big questions and answers in your business. And I think of that as sort of your first round of capital. That next round, for a lot of at least companies in the Bay Area, tends to be somewhere in the range of one to five million dollars. And that tends to be a mix of people believing in the story that you have to tell and believing that you're gonna be able to do what you said you would do, and some rough early set of numbers and metrics around what you've built. And I'd say that every round of capital after that, the pendulum swings more towards proof and metrics and away from pure belief and vision and the entrepreneur and what he or she wants to build. I think <laughs> the other thing you have to keep in mind is I think I didn't want to come here and talk exclusively about venture capital. It's not the only way to raise money. It's not even the most appropriate way for every business to finance itself. But I do think for the entrepreneurs in the room, you have to really think about what your, <coughs> excuse me, what your <laughs> investors' incentives are and what they're really looking for out of investments. If you're looking with early stage investors, a lot of them, including me, are looking for businesses that can start small and can get really, really big. And by really, really big, we mean sort of IPO scale, big M&A big. And that means, in rough terms, somewhere between 50 and $100 million in revenue seven to 10 years out. That's what we're looking for. And in some ways, that creates its own set of incentives. As an early stage VC investor, you're looking for really, really big outcomes. And companies that have small to medium outcomes, you're happy to take them, but that's not really what you're trying to optimize for. Whereas if you're, <coughs> excuse me, if you're a bank and you're lending money, Big outcomes are great, but you're trying to make sure that the company to whom you lend money doesn't go out of business. Because if they go out of business, you're not going to get your principal or interest payments back from that company. So if you're talking to banks, their perspective on these things is really, really different. They're mostly going to be concerned about financial solvency. Have you solved your business model problem? Have you proven out that you've got a business that's worthy of future capital? And are you going to be able to pay back the money that they lend you? And so I think there's sort of three broad buckets and 
and you know, I, I think, again, it's important to figure out, depending on what you're building, all of these might be appropriate for you, none of them might be appropriate for you. And so I think, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about, hey, I'm, I want to go approach VCs, I want to get VC money into my company, you should just know that it's really expensive capital, and we'll talk about why, what makes it expensive <coughs> a little bit later. And it's really great if you have a business that you think can ultimately get really, really big, and the gap between you being where you are and where you want to be is largely access to capital. There's bank loans and other forms of debt, which I think are really good if you have a business that's maybe slightly more tortoise-like, where it has a lot of predictability, you have a lot of visibility into how that business is going to perform month over month, and you feel really good about the core fundamentals, maybe bank loans or, or debt capital might be a better source for you to go. And the last but not least, and most underrated, is money from your customers. If you have the kind of business that early on can generate revenue, whether that's customer prepayments, whether that's customers paying for a service as they use it, whether that's paid development work, whatever it might be, the really nice thing about customer revenue is it doesn't require you to sell any portion of your company in order to bring that capital in. And in many cases, customer revenue is a good signal and sign that the business that you're building is pointed in the right direction. And so I thought I would just talk about sort of like what I'm trying to do at Precursor. You know, I have a small, just to give you all math, and you can think about this next time you meet a venture capitalist, you know, I have a small fund. <coughs> my, goal, my goal is to return three to four times the money that my investors gave me in the aggregate. And that means I need to take companies that are really small when I find them, and I need to help them grow to the point where they can have really large outcomes. So for me, it's a home run game. You know, I'll probably invest in 60 to 80 companies in, in my first fund. My expectation is that the top four or five of them will generate three quarters of all the returns in the fund. That's just the way that early stage venture historically has worked. I have a friend who works at a bank. You know, he expects 95% of the loans that he writes to be fully paid by the, by the borrower. He doesn't, he doesn't need home runs. He just needs you to get on base. And he really needs you to not strike out. And so I think it's really important when you're approaching sources of capital that you understand what their incentive structure is, because mine is to find really big outcomes, even if that means I lose money along the way. Whereas for someone who's more conservative, their goal might be making sure that they get repaid. And I think you know, all of that stuff is, I think, pretty straightforward. The harder point is, like, how do you actually get someone to say yes? And like, how do you actually separate someone with money from their money so that you can put it into your business and grow? And so I think there's a couple of basic principles that I try to tell everyone when it, comes time, when it comes to looking for capital for your business, particularly when you're trying to grow. The first one is it really is a numbers game. You really do have to talk to a lot of people in most cases in order to find the capital that you need. When I'm advising startups about their own fundraising, I tell them, if you're looking to raise seed capital, you should expect to meet with 20 to 40 VCs to get one or two yeses. Sometimes it takes more. I have one company in my portfolio. It took 100 VCs before they got their first yes. And not everyone has the stomach, appetite, time to do that. But I think if you go into your fundraising process knowing that you're going to have to turn over a lot of stones, most likely, to find a yes, it'll help you keep your energy up. And it'll help you <coughs> persist and take those extra meetings. I think the other thing you have to ask about is, how important are the terms of the money that I get to me? Because every type of money comes with a different set of terms and expectations. We already talked a bit about sort of the expectation side, but I mean, we should talk about what I think is one of the big things when you're an entrepreneur is control. How much control of your business do you want to have? 
and how much, of your, how much control are you willing to cede to someone else in exchange for capital? For example, if you're talking to venture capitalists, there's a lot of control-oriented terms that are going to come up. Are you willing to give up a seat on your board to let someone else be a part of your board and make decisions about the future of your company? Are you willing to sign up for terms that might allow outside investors to get their capital back before you as a common shareholder see a dime in an acquisition or an IPO? Are you willing to give up voting rights or other key provisions that take control out of your hand as an entrepreneur and give it to someone else? Not everybody's willing to do that. And the same is true of bank loans. Are you willing to commit to sort of not have your cash balance go below some level? Are you willing to pledge some of the firm's assets uh, in order <coughs> to secure that loan? And you have to spend a lot of time thinking about whether those are things you want to do, because again, every type of capital comes with a set of expectations and conditions. And I think the last thing that I really do think is worth thinking about is, particularly in the context of venture capital and equity fundraising, is valuation. And particularly, how important is valuation to you? A lot of people ask me all the time, hey, what's a fair valuation for a startup? And I always tell them, well, you know, a valuation is just a negotiation. As you get later in your company's life, when you have real metrics, you've got revenue, you've got gross margin, <coughs> you've got market size that you can argue with investors over, it's actually much easier to figure out what that business is worth. You can look at public equivalents and try to come up with a fair value. But in the early days, a lot of it comes down to what you as an entrepreneur can negotiate and what the market says is fair for companies at your stage. And what I found is if you're going to negotiate as an entrepreneur, you got to have a couple things. You have to have a really clear and compelling market opportunity that you're going after. You have to be a really good storyteller about why the thing that you want to build needs to and should exist. And most importantly, there needs to be a really strong sense of why now? Why should I invest in this team and this market right now? And remember, the folks that you're pitching, they see many, many companies every day, week, month, and they can only invest in a couple. Your goal is to get yourself to the very top of that stack. I think the last thing I want to talk about broadly is before you take capital from folks and before you go down this journey, bringing other people into your company is a really hard thing to do. Many of you will hire people. Some of those folks won't work out and you'll transition them out. Some of you will try new business models. Some of them will work and sometimes you'll have to pivot and try something new. The tricky thing with investors is once you get them in your company, it's very hard to get rid of them. And so you should be really, really thoughtful about the kind of people that you want to bring into your company. And the last thing I always tell entrepreneurs to think through is alignment. Are you and your investors fundamentally aligned? And that takes a lot, that covers a lot of dimensions. There's dimensions like, do you see the market opportunity in the same way? Do you feel the same way about how much capital you should raise and more importantly, how you should spend it? Do you have the same view on what the company's priorities should be in terms of engineering, building product, going after customers, generating more sales? And fundamentally, do you want to spend time with this person? Because he or she is going to become an integral part of your business, and the two of you, or three of you, are going to spend a lot of time together talking about the business. And so if you're not aligned with your capital provider, it can be really, really difficult to have a good relationship for both of you. And so those are sort of my quick tips for thinking about looking for sources of capital for your business. I wanted to leave time for audience Q&A. And so 
I figured it'd be more interesting to talk about what you all want to discuss anyway. Okay, and boy, do we have Q&A oh for lot. you. Cool. All right, we have a bunch of questions. So the top question is, what are some companies you turned down who made oh, it big? <laughs> Tell us about your anti-portfolio. Spill the beans here. Oh, my. Where'd you uh, mess up? I have a lot. So in some cases, um, wow, I don't even know where to start. So I'll give you a couple of examples of companies that pitched where we, so things that I've seen and been part of a no. Uber, um, when they pitched, they had a different management team running the company, and they were only doing the black car service. There was no UberX at the time. Uh, a good friend of mine, I was in the room when he got pitched LinkedIn, and he thought it would never get that big. It was too small. Um, let's see. What are some more embarrassing ones that we missed? Oh, Dollar Shave Club. We missed on that. I never thought that selling $250 million worth of razors would be big enough in the grand scheme of the razor business, and Unilever was right and I was wrong. So <laughs> these things happen. As a VC, you eventually have to get used to the fact that some things, I could give you great reasons why I thought all those businesses might have had challenges. I was ultimately wrong. And you have to accept that as a VC. If you get too many of those things wrong over time, you will not be a VC for very long. Since you brought up Uber, that's funny, because yeah. when they were piloting in San Francisco, a good friend of mine was uh, trying them out and said, oh, you should try it out. I thought, I said, that's a stupid idea. Right. That's a security <laughs> issue. I don't want to get into a car that's not licensed by any companies mm -hmm. out there. I value my security. Now that's I right. take Uber all the time. That's right. Shows how much <laughs> I know. All right. What's the number one mistake you see new entrepreneurs make today? Oh, boy. You guys have really good questions. Um, I think the number one mistake that I see is almost everyone I pitch has a vision for what their company should be two quarters from now. A lot of people, if I ask them, what does this business look like in three to five years, I get a lot of blank stares. And I think as an entrepreneur, I get it. When you're in there hustling and grinding, you're really focused on what can I get done today, what can I get done this quarter. But the best entrepreneurs I've met, they have a multi-year vision for what it is that they want to build. And they do a good job of bridging from how today's activities tie to the grand vision. And the thing that scares me the most is that a company doesn't have a long-term plan, goes heads down, gets some money, works for three quarters, does everything they said they were going to do, pops their head up and says, well, we don't know what we're supposed to do next. All right, you invest in vision belief stage startups. Um, what metrics do you use to find your seven to 10 year opportunity? Um, good question. So the things I look for are one, I look for people that have a bit of a chip on their shoulder, who have something to prove. A lot of times, entrepreneurs I back, they worked at a company and they had a good idea and they were frustrated because management wouldn't let them pursue it or got passed over for a promotion or, They've just been underestimated in all phases of their life and they've overcome it. I think that's usually a good leading indicator of entrepreneurial persistence. The other thing is I look for people that have a very unique and deeply held point of view about their own market. There's a lot of times I'll see 10 companies in, in a given space that are all doing the same thing. They have the same business model, same go-to-market strategy, same take on the opportunity. And it's really hard to win when everybody sees the world through the same lens that you do. Marketing gets hard, recruiting gets hard, finding customers gets hard. I look for people that have kind of a contrarian or different view on what it is that they want to build. And I use this other word, malleable. I don't like entrepreneurs who if I give them advice, they will immediately run off and go do it. Also, I don't like working with people who, if you persistently and consistently give them advice that they never heed it. I like people who are kind of in between, like they're stubborn, but if you make a good argument, they will revisit a position. All right, good. Uh, what do you look for in companies with two founders and an idea? 
Ooh, uh, I'd say 85% of the companies I fund are two founders and an idea. One for me is just the clarity of what it is that they want to build and why. So a lot of times I'll ask people, why did you decide to tackle this problem right now? So a lot of it is, you know, do you have a sense for why the market timing is right now? I'll usually want to figure out what have you managed to cobble together or hack together in terms of a prototype or progress on limited resources, because that's usually a good leading indicator of what you'll do with money. And I think the third thing is some general sense of where you fit in the competitive landscape and how you're going to address competition. It doesn't have to be pages, but it's more understanding what your competitor strategies and plans are and why that creates an opportunity in the market for you. All right, you did not mention venture debt as a financing option. <laughs> what is your opinion of when it's appropriate to consider that? I think venture debt is really good for businesses where you've figured out the business model, you're generating some revenue, and the interest payments on the venture debt are manageable for the company. I mean, the, the upside to venture debt is that it doesn't involve as much dilution as, sell, as selling equity. The downside is, at some point, you have to pay it back. And so I think for businesses that haven't figured out the business model and don't have clarity there, venture debt can be really dangerous because you can really get in over your head. I think for businesses that are looking to tack on an extra three, five, ten million dollars to a large round and don't want additional dilution, venture debt can be super helpful. Okay, everyone always says you need an introduction to a VC for them to even look at your plan, yeah. return your call, whatever. Is it true or can you actually cold call these firms and push for a meeting on your own? Uh, I would say about 5% of the meetings I take come from cold calls and I think I'm probably very high on the distribution. I'd say 95% of VCs don't like cold calls. And if someone tells you we don't like cold calls, just take them at their word. But I do think in this era, there are some people you can cold pitch them on Twitter, you can reach them, you can reach them through email. I think there's a set, the newer firms I would say are a bit more open to being approached cold. And I have, I would say in my entire investing history, I've done one truly cold pitch where I didn't know the person and they basically found their way to me through really odd means I ended up investing. And that one actually worked out pretty well. Well, then what, do you, what happens when, let's say there's someone in the audience, they've got a great idea, they don't, they're not tapped into that VC network. How do you get started in terms of actually getting an introduction? Yeah. So I tell people, like my, I'll give you my cheat sheet. The number one source of intros that I pay attention to are actually fellow entrepreneurs. So if there's someone who I've backed in the past or backed currently, if you get an introduction from that person, that immediately shoots to the top of my inbox because the entrepreneurs I've backed, they know me the best, I know them the best, and their judgment that you're someone I should meet is fine. And, it and look, it doesn't have to be a strong endorsement. They can just say, hey, I met this person, I thought they were pretty smart, I don't have a strong opinion on the idea. I get everything from that to this person's my best friend, we grew up together, they're like the smartest person in the world that I know. It's a spectrum. I'd say next best is actually people who've invested in my fund who send me companies are the next best source. I'd say the third best source is just other VCs who don't invest at my stage. I'll tell you the worst, the worst intro you can get, I can get, is from another VC who passed on your company where they were given your stage and their business model they should have invested. Don't go after those. Those really don't help you. Okay. What's the one line that can convert a yes or a no to a yes or vice versa? You mean that someone that can tell me? Yeah. Uh, okay, things that can, can definitely get you into the no bucket are easier to say. We have no competitors. Um, we think we can IPO in three years. We can get profitable on this 500K that you're going to give us. Those are probably like the, the big 
the big no's. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a, that's a good one. I don't have a lot of instant ones that have like, saved the no and turned it into a yes. Those are harder. Okay. Um, as an investor, what do you look for uh, as an investment-worthy <laughs> signs for funding a platform-based business oh. early stage? Oh, that's a really specific question. Yeah. Um, so for platform-based businesses, the biggest thing I look for is, does the entrepreneur understand how platforms are built? I think a lot of platform-based businesses I meet, they say, we're going to build this platform, and then everyone else is going to show up and use it. And a lot of times, if you look at a lot of the great platforms, they started with one really core application that drew users in, and they used that as the basis for building the platform out underneath it. So if you look at what Facebook did, you know, it started with photos on the wall, and now they've built a whole bunch of other functions underneath it. Google sort of pulls you in with search and gives you Gmail and Calendar and other activities. So the ones that scare me the most are the ones where they say, we're going to build this really elaborate platform, and then people are going to show up. And my question is always, to do what? Like, what's going to be the first core activity that's going to happen on your platform, and who's going to build it, and why should they build on your platform as opposed to someone else's? Okay. <laughs> Have you done any investments in uh, entrepreneurs who are focused on emerging markets? And if so, what are you looking for? <laughs> oh, I've gotten really close twice, and both of them were in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, I, the hesitation I have as an investor is I just don't know international markets or emerging markets the way that I at least believe I know the United States and North America. So it's really hard for me if you showed me a great idea. Like if someone said, hey, this is the Netflix of, this is the Netflix of South Africa. It's a lot of work for me to figure out, well, maybe Netflix is the Netflix of South Africa. Are there other products, competitors? How does the market work? The barrier for me to get smart just ends up being really high. And so in many cases, I've just decided that if I'm going to do emerging markets, I probably have to make it a focused activity. Okay. Has a founder or founders um, ever turned <laughs> down your investment and why? Absolutely. Uh, I, I wish I could say no. Sometimes there's a couple of things. Sometimes I just get to the opportunity too late. The person's already on the verge of closing, and by the time I get through all of my due diligence, they have other people who are on it faster. Sometimes, honestly, a firm with a bigger name or reputation or brand comes in and sort of elbows their way into the deal. Because at the end of the day, founders choose who gets to invest. All I can do is make an offer to invest. Founders ultimately have to cobble together syndicates and groups of people to invest. Thankfully, it doesn't happen that often. Um, but it, it definitely is, is more than zero times per year. Uh, <laughs> any lessons for startups within an enterprise? Like, Startups within a big company? I, I assume that's what that means. Gosh, that's just so hard. It's just really hard to make that model work because you have all of the overhead and construct of the big company, and you're this little pool of people <coughs> trying to fight. And if you think about the advantages you have, or you have all this infrastructure from the big company, but it ends up being, a lot of times, bureaucracy and overhead. You have all these check-in meetings. You have to use whatever infrastructure the company uses. And that startup that you're competing with that's out in the free world, they don't have any of those restrictions and any of those encumbrances. So I think it's really hard. My advice would be try to get spun out as quickly as you possibly can. Okay. And I think this is going to have to be the final question. Okay. Um, what do you look for when you look for oh, an yeah. associate to join your team? Boy, so uh, I hired our first person to work at Precursor. I, I, a couple of things. One is they have to be really good at doing the parts of the job that I don't think I'm particularly good at doing. Two, the big thing for me is intellectual curiosity. So I'll ask people a lot of questions around, 
what's an interesting startup that you're following? Tell me about a new skill or ability that you learned. A lot of it is about uh, plastic minds and intellectual curiosity. And then I ask a lot of questions just around people's work style and sort of self-awareness. Those are the big things. Okay. Cool. Wonderful. Yeah. Charles Hudson. We, we managed to get I know. I wish you could have got all of them. Pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Charles Hudson with Precursor, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you.